Carter Report presents worship from the Community Adventist Fellowship in Glendale, California. A special welcome to all of our viewers in North America and our new friends and churches in Russia. Today you'll enjoy uplifting music and the preaching of the everlasting gospel by pastor, teacher, and evangelist John Carter. Please get your Bible and study the Word of God with us today. Thank you for joining us for Worship and Praise. the story about Jesus calming the storm. Matthew 8 verses 23 to 26. And the Bible says, Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Without warning a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. There arose a great storm. Sometimes storms arise in our lives. The waves sweep over us and make us feel as if we're going to drown. Christ could prevent these storms, but allows them for a reason. One is so that God will receive the glory for the deliverance, and two, it is to test and develop our faith. What did the disciples do in this storm? They went to Jesus, the very best place for anyone to go. What did the disciples say? Lord, save us the best thing to cry out. Lord, save us from our sins. Save us from our doubts and fears. Lord, save us in the storms of life. Christ came in the, into the world to save, didn't he? And notice here, they call him Lord. And you remember in Acts 2 and verse 21, it tells us, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When we call on him, we will not be disappointed. In verse 26, Jesus asks, why are you so afraid? Now, he doesn't rebuke them for disturbing him with their prayers, but rather for their lack of faith. And even though he rebukes them, he honors the fact that they did call out to him. The Bible says that he rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. And so it is in the storms of life, when the waves and winds are roaring, when we cry out, Lord, save us, there comes a wonderful, serene, and calm experience that only our Lord Jesus Christ can give. And I pray that this will be our experience. Today we're going to talk about Daniel chapter 8, which reveals the true Antichrist and how he has deceived the whole wide world, millions. 
We're going to have a look behind the scenes. We're going to become involved today in the great controversy between Jesus Christ and the great adversary, Satan. We're going to notice today that every person is involved in this cosmic struggle for the hearts and the souls of men. We're going to discover today that there are two great princes. One is the Lord Jesus Christ, one is Satan, and there are two kingdoms. Often in this life, my friend, we are preoccupied with the trivial. We turn on television and something grabs our attention and it rivets us and we think it's important. Often the urgent becomes important, but today we're not going to talk about that which is trivial or that which is necessarily sensational, but we're going to talk about that which is most important for the salvation of our souls. And that is our involvement in the cosmic struggle of truth against error. I want you to take your Bible now and turn to Daniel, the eighth chapter. And many theologians would suggest that this is the very heart of the book of Daniel. It is the climax of these prophecies. Daniel chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, this means the Babylonian kingdom was coming to its close because Belshazzar was the last of the kings. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai River. This gives us the context. The vision takes place in the land of Persia because Babylon is coming to its end and now the great power of Medo-Persia is about to come on the world scene. Before we go any further today, we ought to have a synopsis or a summary of the book of Daniel that we have studied so far. Now, this will have to uh, penetrate deeply into your memories. The book of Daniel has a number of great chains, basically four chains that are based on the principle of repetition and enlargement. Let me say that again. It has four great chains of revealed truth that are based on the principle of repetition and enlargement. Those great prophecies are Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and Daniel 9. And Daniel 8 and 9, you could say, are tied together. So you have Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8 and 9, and then verse, uh, chapters 10 to 12. And these great chapters basically go over the same material, but with extra edification and enlightenment and enlargement. You can't understand Daniel 8 unless you understand this principle. So Daniel 2 is the ABC of Bible prophecy. And in Daniel 2, you have the great metal man of destiny with the head of gold and the chest of silver and the belly and the thighs of bronze and the legs of iron and the feet part of iron and part of clay. And then you come, have the coming of the great stone of destiny that strikes the image and breaks it into a million pieces. We know for a certainty that the great metal man of Daniel 2 represents, you tell me, the head of gold. What was that? Babylon. 
And then you have the chest of silver, which is Medo-Persia, and the belly and the thighs of bronze, which is Greece, and the legs of iron, which represent Rome. And then you have the feet and the toes, part of iron and part of potter's clay, which represent the breakup of the Roman Empire into the kingdoms and the states of modern Europe. Then you have the coming of the stone which is cut out without hand. Remember this? It is cut out without hand and strikes the image. And the stone that strikes the image becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. And this represents the coming of the kingdom of God to this earth. Daniel 7 is like unto it. You have the lion, then the bear, the leopard with four heads and four wings like a bird, and then you have the monster, and after the monster you have the ten horns, and then you have the reign of terror and the twelve sixty days, and then you have the setting up of the kingdom of God. Now tell me, in Daniel 7, what is the line? Babylon. Come on, I say this to the Russians and the Ukrainians, and they shout it out. What is the line? It's Babylon. And what is the rapacious bear? Medo-Persia. And then we have the leopard with the four heads. This is, this is Greece. And then we have the four heads that symbolize the breakup of the Grecian Empire after the death of Alexander into the kingdoms of his warring generals who were Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. And then you have the coming of the the most dreadful of all creatures, the dragon. And the dragon represents what power? What power? It is pagan Rome. This is the Rome of the Caesars. And then you have the ten horns on the Roman beast that is symbolic of the, the breakup of the Roman Empire into the kingdoms and the states of Europe. And then you have the rise of the nefarious little horn. And we should notice this before we notice these powerful verses of Daniel chapter 8. Please notice Daniel 7. Let's come back to Daniel 7, verse 8. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth that spoke boastfully or blasphemously. This is the, the church of the Dark Ages. This is the king that arose on the ruins of the Roman Empire and the king who made war against the truth of God and who deceived almost the whole wide world. But then in this chapter, after the reign of the medieval church who was reborn in the last days, you have verses 9 and onwards. As I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat his clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire, and his wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. The Bible teaches that before Jesus comes and after the reign of the Antichrist, there is a great pre-advent judgment and the world is summoned before the throne of God. And then verse 11 says, 
Then I continue to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. The greatest activity of this nefarious little horn is done in the days of the judgment right at the very end of time. But then the Bible says, verse 26 of Daniel 7, but the court will sit and his power, the power of Antichrist, will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. So now listen carefully to this synopsis of truth. In Bible prophecy, there is Babylon followed by Medo-Persia, followed by Greece, which is followed by Rome, which is followed by the breakup of the Roman Empire into the kingdoms of Europe and the kingdoms of this world. Then the Bible says, after this comes the reign of the Antichrist who changes the truth of God into a lie, the persecution of the people of God. But the Bible says, then there comes the judgment and the judgment reveals to the universe the character of the Antichrist and takes away his dominion and then the kingdom and the power is given to the people of the saints of the Most High and the stone comes and smites the image and Jesus rules on earth. This is the story of the Bible and this is amplified, it is enlarged in Daniel chapter 8 and I want you now to notice it verse by verse in our exposition. Please notice it in the sure word of Bible prophecy. Please notice it. Think about it as we read it today. And I love his word, do you not? Verse 3, I looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him and none could rescue from his power. And he did as he pleased and became great. And Bible prophecy, and we will see this as we read a little uh, further today, Bible prophecy teaches that the ram is symbolic of what kingdom? It is, do you all not know this? It is the kingdom of Medo-Persia. Let me give you a text. I thought you would all know this. Uh, would you please uh, notice verse uh, 20 of the same chapter. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. You may as well read on verse 21 because it says, The shaggy goat is the king of Greece and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four king kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. And so it is very plain in Bible prophecy that the ram represents the power of Medo-Persia that ruled the world roughly between 538 and 331 BC when the goat came. Because notice now verse 5 of Daniel 8 verse 5. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. So he's thundering along. He came towards the two-horned ram I'd seen standing beside the canal, charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him. 
and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power his large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. And so we have noticed that the ram represents Medo-Persia, and the shaggy goat with the great prominent horn represents the kingdom of Greece. And the great horn that is between his eyes represents, the Bible says, the first and the great king of Greece, who was Alexander the Great. My friend, do you know the story which I believe is told by the great Jewish historian Josephus, the story as to why Alexander did not destroy the city of Jerusalem? He destroyed every city virtually. And because the Jews refused to cooperate with him, he said, I'm going to march against Jerusalem and I shall destroy the city of Jerusalem. But as his soldiers approached the gates of the city of Jerusalem, he was met by a group of men dressed in white, led by the high priests, the priests of the Jews. And Alexander was a superstitious young man. And they invited him to come into the temple and he showed, and they showed him in the writings of the prophet Daniel how he was called and mentioned by name before he was born. And when Alexander saw these amazing prophecies, he gave glory to the God of heaven and he would not destroy the temple. There is power in the word of God even to convince a pagan like Alexander the Great, when he's willing to be convinced. We've just come back from the Ukraine where we have seen tens of thousands of atheists and communists and unbelievers convinced that there's a God in heaven through these very prophecies. But I want to tell you, some of us here have heard the truth of God so long that it no longer grips our souls and we are still in bondage to unbelief. Many of us are not growing in grace. Many of us are still children, are still children as far as the word of God is concerned. Many of us are not living the lives that God wants us to live because these great truths have become commonplace. But these great truths, I tell you today, are... Proof, proof that there is a personal God and that the Bible is true. And that God is in charge. And that this great God has this world in his hands. And you and I, my friends, should not allow the Ukrainians or the Russians to rush past us and leave us gasping in the dust. We are people who have had amazing opportunities. Some would say we have had too many and God is going to stop giving us opportunities. We have had opportunity after opportunity to believe in God and to accept the word of God and to grow in grace and to be done with childish fables and foolish things. And I want to tell you today that this is a most blessed land and God has given to you and to me the greatest opportunities in the world to hear the word of God. I say to you today, be careful how you hear. And be careful what you do with what you hear today. 
This is not a movie theater. And this is not a concert. This is a revelation from the throne of God. And God expects us to walk in the light. I tell you, my friend, it is better never to hear the truth of God than to hear the truth and to disregard the truth of God. A person said to me recently concerning a person who should be far advanced in the walk of, of the Lord said about that person, his problem is he knows it all, but he does nothing about it. He knows it all, but he doesn't walk in the light. He mouths pious expressions. He can say beautiful prayers, but he doesn't walk in the light of the Lord. You and I, my friend, would be better never to hear the word of God than to hear the word of God and disregard it. Every word we hear, we are duty-bound to follow. And in this sure word of Bible prophecy, we have proof that cannot be denied that there is a personal created God who gave His Son to die on the cross that you and I might be saved and who has given us a holy law to obey. And God help us to do so and not simply to mouth pious platitudes, but to walk in the light of truth. Please read on with me in Daniel chapter 8. And so this describes the course of Alexander, his death, and the breakup of the kingdom of Alexander. Uh, his kingdom broke up towards the four winds of heaven, we're told in verse 8. But verse 9 says, out of one of them, out of one of these breakups came another horn. This is Antichrist, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. This is Rome in both phases of its activity, pagan and papal. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens and it threw some of, some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host, that's Jesus. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, that's Calvary. And the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did and truth was thrown to the ground. These are some of the greatest words in the Bible. This is a portrayal of the great controversy between our Lord Jesus Christ and the true Antichrist. Who is the true Antichrist? Who is the one who casts down the stars to the ground? Where do you read those words in another part of Scripture? In Revelation chapter 12 where it talks about Satan himself, Lucifer, and it says he cast down the stars to the ground. But here we have Lucifer working through a great earthly power, a great coalition of church and state that started in the days of the Caesars, that entered the Holy Land, that made war against Jesus Christ, that nailed him to the cross but which was reborn in the medieval church. The coalition of church and state that became the most intolerant organization in the world. Where do we find Antichrist in Scripture? We find Antichrist in Scripture hiding in the church. We find Antichrist masquerading with all his pieties, dressed in his fineries, but with a heart as hard as steel and an attitude of gross intolerance and who would set himself up in pride to be above the God of heaven. These verses, my friend, meet their fulfillment 
in the great ecclesiastical system that changed the law of God and that said, I will be like God. You see, this is what made Lucifer into a devil. I will be like God. There is enough pride in every human heart to emulate the first apostate. Whenever I think that I am like God and I can do the works of God in myself, then I am Antichrist. Satan said, I'm going to be like God. Then there came a great ecclesiastical organization and the leader of that organization went on record as saying, we hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. And people were taught to look to a system, an infallible system, instead of looking to Christ. Whenever you look to an organization instead of to Christ, you are worshiping Antichrist. Am I getting close to you? Some of us say, you know, Pastor Carter, that only refers to the apostate church of the dark ages. I say to you again, whenever you put an earthly system in the place of God and obey it blindly, you, have, you are worshiping Antichrist. Antichrist is anything that is in the place of Christ. The Bible says, so you can have Antichrist in Protestant churches, can't you? You can have Antichrist in your heart. These verses, historically, are understood as referring to the medieval church, which is alive and well today, and whose greatest days are still to come. The Bible says he put himself in the place of the prince. He took away the daily sacrifice. The sacrifice of the sanctuary was the story of Calvary. When it says he took away the daily or the tamed, it means he took away the cross. When it says the place of his sanctuary was cast down, it is referring to the great heavenly sanctuary that represents the kingdom of God. The sanctuary is a microcosm of the kingdom of God. In the sanctuary, in the courtyard, you had a bleeding victim, and in the most holy place, you had the law of God. And you had a priest who ministered to bring reconciliation and forgiveness. What is the message of the sanctuary? That there is a holy law. You can break it, but you don't break it. There is a holy law, there is a holy priest who intercedes for us, and there is a holy sacrifice, and there is forgiveness, and there's restoration. And the sanctuary tells you and me how we can approach God. The Bible says, in the dark ages, the system exists today, there would arise a counterfeit system which would say salvation is through the church. Salvation is through an earthly priest. I want to read you a statement that illustrates 
what I'm telling you. Stephen, thank you. Now, one should not be offended from reading a, a statement like this because I'm quoting from, I'm not making up this, I'm not commenting on it at present, I'm reading a statement of what the church says itself. Our Sunday visitor, which is put out by the great church of Rome, here is the quote. When the priest pronounces the tremendous words of consecration, that's in the Mass, he reaches up into heaven, brings Christ down from his throne, and places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of men. It is a greater power than that of monarchs and potentates. It is greater than that of saints and angels. Greater than that of seraphim and cherubim. Indeed, it is greater even than the power of the Virgin Mary. For while the Blessed Virgin was the human agency by which Christ became incarnate a single time, the priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him incarnate on our altar as the eternal victim for the sins of men, not once, but a thousand times. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal and omnipotent God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. That is good theology in that great church. Millions and millions of people have been taught that the priest who stands in the place of God, when he takes the bread and says, this is my body, by the power of the doctrine of transubstantiation, it becomes the actual body of our Lord. And the wine becomes the blood of our Lord. And the priest, with the backing of an infallible church, offers up the eternal God. Not once, but a million times. It is called in Scripture, the abomination of desolation. The Bible teaches, our Lord Jesus Christ taught, the writer of Hebrews taught, we are saved by one sacrifice once for all. Once for all. Once for all. It says in Hebrews 10, over and over again, Hebrews 9, He came down once for all. There has been one sacrifice, only one. When Jesus died, it was enough for all men for all time. He who adds to the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ makes himself an antichrist. You say these are strong words, don't doubt it. If you would be saved, then you must, by some power other than a human power, divorce yourself from that system that has destroyed more human bodies than even communism. The Bible says, he took away the daily, so he has, by setting up a counterfeit cross. He took away the priest, he cast the priest down because there are Hundreds of thousands of earthly priests. The Bible tells me that I am saved by a priest and the church does need a priest. 
And we do have a priest, and his name is Jesus, and he's in glory. You see? That's why you shouldn't look to me. You ought to look to Christ. That's why you don't confess your sins to me. I cannot save you from your sins. Only God can. The Bible says confess your sins to God. The Bible says there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. We have a priest and we have an altar. The Bible says he cast down the truth to the ground. If you understood Hebrew, the expression the truth is a Hebrewism that refers to the law of God. The Bible says that this power that would have a counterfeit priest and a counterfeit Calvary would have a counterfeit law. Let me read you some statements from the Word of God. And I don't need to tell you what you need to do. When you hear these things, you know what you need to do. The Converts Catechism of Catholic Doctrine says, Question, which is the Sabbath day? Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Question, why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Answer, we observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church and the Council of Laodicea transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. So he cast down the truth to the ground and practiced and he prospered. Now, I want to say this to the people who are watching on television throughout Los Angeles and across North America. People come to me and they say, but this Sabbath keeping is legalistic. Well, sure, it's legalistic if you're a legalist. But if you're saved by grace, Sabbath keeping is a joyful experience. Now, people say to me, but the Sabbath is not Christian. I wouldn't like to use that argument. I really wouldn't like to use that argument because they could use it against Jesus. Because Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. People say, well, I couldn't keep the Sabbath because it's Jewish. I wouldn't like to be anti-Semitic. I re really wouldn't. People say, I, I, I couldn't keep the Sabbath because it's Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. The Bible is a Jewish book. The Blessed Virgin Mary was Jewish. All the apostles and the prophets and the saints of the Bible, they're all Jews. So don't run away from the Sabbath because you say it's Jewish. But even though Jesus is Jewish and the Bible is a Jewish book, the Sabbath is not Jewish. It was given in the Garden of Eden thousands of years before there was a Jew. And Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man. And M-A-N doesn't spell J-E-W. The Sabbath was given to the Jews, but it was given to the human race. And the Bible tells me it is the Lord's day. It is in the Ten Commandments. It is the Fourth Commandment. And the Bible says the Antichrist would change the law of God. I have even met some people who try to make Jesus the Antichrist because they say Jesus changed the Sabbath. They're imputing to Jesus the sin of the Antichrist. I've met them, they say, but Jesus abolished the law of God. The Bible says the Antichrist would change the law of God. Don't make Jesus, the Antichrist. That's the worst thing you can do. The Bible tells me that Jesus gave us the holy law and Jesus kept the Sabbath. The Bible tells me that all the apostles kept the Sabbath.
The Bible tells me that all the early Christians kept the Sabbath. The Bible uh, tells me that all the prophets kept the Sabbath. History tells me it was the only day that was ever kept by the saints of God back in the days of the apostolic power of the Holy Spirit. The Sabbath is the Lord's day. And the Sabbath says, I made you. I created you. I am the God. And when we go to church and when we keep the Sabbath, we are saying, I love you, God, and I recognize that you are the sovereign Lord, and therefore I worship you, and I want the world to know it. This, this made the devil so mad that one of the first things he said to the Antichrist religion was, get rid of that Sabbath. Change the law. He changed the law of God. Never commit blasphemy and say that Jesus did what the Antichrist did. Don't say Jesus changed the Sabbath. It's a lie. I want to tell you folks something else. Have you ever wondered why society has got so bad? Why did society get so bad in Russia and the Ukraine? It's because people stopped worshipping the Creator. I said to those people, those hundreds of thousands just a few weeks ago, if everybody here had kept the Sabbath, there'd be, there would have been no communism. No atheism. It would have been the most prosperous country in the world. Would you like to know why America is in so much trouble today? Why the streets are no longer safe? Would you like to know why the, why the family has broken down? Would you like to know why there is so much mental illness and people are breaking up and the politicians are saying we've got to have a turnaround in this country or else we're going to go the, the way of the Roman Empire and America will no longer be a nation in the 21st century. That is a possibility. People say it could never happen to America. It's happened to every other country. Who do we think we are? Who do we think we are? We think we're a greater breed. I will tell you, my friend, there's only one hope. It is a return to God and a worship of the great creator and a keeping of the Sabbath. Yeah. Keeping of the Sabbath. Now listen, Moody, a great Baptist revivalist of the last century said, when the Sabbath goes, number one, the family goes. When the family goes, society goes. When society goes, the nation goes. And what has happened today is that people have been duped by the Antichrist. They have not believed the words of the living Christ. They have believed the words of the nefarious little horn, the Antichrist. And they have followed him. And therefore the world has gone almost to hell. Are these verses relevant to us today? Are they giving us a message? What is the message of the Word of God? My brother, to your heart, the message of the Word of God is follow the Word and believe in Christ and obey His Word. This is the only hope for the world, my friend. Now, please read on, please. Please read on. You know, there's so much we can talk about. Daniel 8, verse 13 and 14. Now this is the climax of the chapter, which is the climax of the book. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision, this is Daniel 8, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily, the tamed, the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, 
and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, it'll take 2,300 evenings and mornings or days. Evening and morning, this refers to the evening and morning sacrifices in the temple. This is temple language. This is sanctuary lang language. It'll take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Now listen very carefully because I know I'm talking to a lot of Adventists and, and these verses are very important for the structure of our church. Listen. In Daniel 8, you have a picture, and those of you who are new in our church, listen up. In Daniel chapter 8, you have a picture of, of dreadful apostasy. You have truth on the scaffold, error on the throne. You have the truth about the Sabbath down in the gutter. You have the saints of God going down into their graves with their names covered with infamy. You have the story of the martyrs. This is what I was talking about, the story of the martyrs. You have the truth about the gospel down in the gutter of the world. And there is an angel there. He says, how long? How long? Until you do something about it, God. How long until the whole truth is restored and the Antichrist is unmasked and the saints of God are vindicated in judgment? Boy. The word here, reconsecrated in the NIV, is the Hebrew word nitzstak, which is the Niphile form of zadak. And this word means to vindicate or justify. It is the language of a court. It has forensic connotations. It is the language that is used in a court when a person is vindicated. It is the language of judgment. God says here, after 2,300 days or years, because this prophecy reaches to the very end of time. It reaches to the very last days, to the very time when God sets up his kingdom. God says, after these 2300 years, then there is going to be a work on this earth to, to rid the church of the shame of sin. There's going to be a, a work of restoration. The gospel is going to be restored. The Sabbath is going to be restored. The truth of the priesthood is going to be restored. The truth of the Antichrist is going to be shouted. And the saints of God are going to be vindicated in the judgment when the books are opened. And at that time, the power is going to be taken from the nefarious little horn and the kingdom of God is going to come. What a concept. These verses tell us the mission of the church. Next week, we'll talk about the starting date of the 2300 years. But those years climax right at the very end of time or the time of the end, to be more correct. And in that day, God is going to have a movement in the world to undo the work of the Antichrist. Listen to me, church. 
Listen to me, my beloved brother and sister. Listen also, my beloved administrative friend. The church of God in the last days is called to do one great work. It is to go into the world and to preach the gospel and to uplift the Christ and to magnify the law and to tell the people that we have a high priest and Jesus is coming soon. That's the purpose of the church. And I tell you, I want to tell you something today. Listen. The church today is bogged down. No amens. The church is bogged down. It is bogged down in committees. It is bogged down in yakketing and planning and talking, but no doing. It's not always going to be that way. God is going to shake the church and shake out the chaff. He's going to shake the church and God is going to raise up modern day apostles who'll preach the word. And uh, these verses here, tied in with Revelation 14 verses 6 and onwards, give us the purpose of the church. Now, I'll give you my testimony. I do not want to be a person who helps to defend the status quo. I do not want to be a church politician. We've got thousands of those. I want to be doing what God has called the church to do, and that is to preach this message in fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And uh, I tell you, it's wonderful to know when you do it, you have the backing of the God of heaven. It's his work. That's why God has blessed us in Russia. Now we're going to talk about the 2300 days more next week. Now come down to verse 15. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision, trying to understand it, there before me stood one like uh, a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. Now, you know who says, tell this man? You know when he says, Gabriel, tell this man, you know who's calling out there? That's Jesus. Because only Jesus would give an order to Gabriel. This is Jesus. Jesus is interested in this message. Jesus gives it. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. When you're in the presence of God, you're not going to be too boastful. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. Most of my evangelical friends tell me that this prophecy was fulfilled in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes in the, in the Old Testament. That is not so. Uh, not so at all. This prophecy is consummated in the last days, in our day. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said to me, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. This prophecy, my friend, climaxes in the last days. Don't let anybody tell you. This prophecy was fulfilled in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes in the Old Testament. It just isn't so. That's not true. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. The large horn between his eyes is the first king, Alexander. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but, not, will have the same, but will not have the same power. 
in the latter part of their reign, when rebels have completely have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. Why not by his own power? Because the devil is behind him. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. This talks about the persecutions of the medieval church that will be repeated in the last days. He will cause deceit to prosper and will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. He did this in the days of Jesus. He did it in the dark ages and he does it today. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Who's going to destroy him? Jesus is going to destroy him. The vision of the evenings and the morning that has been given you is true. That's the 2,300 years. But seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. And the larger understanding of the vision is given in Daniel 9 that we will discuss next week. Now listen carefully. I'm going to summarize all this. This is solid theology we've done today. We need to do more of it. Well, how does this affect me? It tells me this. I'll tell you how it affects me personally. John Carter, a sinner saved by grace, is in the midst of the great cosmic controversy between Christ and Satan. And so are you. This is not kid stuff. We are involved in the battle of the ages. Number two, it tells me that the most sinister, deceitful forces in the world are found in the realm of religion. So be careful of people who talk religion, but whose lives are not changed by the power of God. It tells me that the greatest deception that came to the world came in the form of a great church-state system that arose on the ruins of the Roman Empire and is with us today. And it tells us that the issues that are at stake are these. Listen to them. The cross the sacrifice, the law of God, the priest, the commandments of God. If I miss out on a correct relationship to these things or these great events, then I will never walk the streets of gold. I need today to say, how is my relationship to my God? And the cross of his son. The greatest teaching in the Bible, Edie, is the story of the blood. There's power in the blood. If your life, my friend, is not centered in the cross, and if your life is not covered by the blood, you are not a child of God. That's the most important thing. The cross. The cross. The blood of the cross. Some people are afraid of the preaching of the cross. That's because they're deluded by Antichrist. The cross, number one. The priest. When I sin, that's often. 
I have a high priest and I don't need to go to any earthly person and confess my sins. I take them into the throne room of the universe. And I say, Lord, have mercy. And he says, I will have mercy because of the blood of the cross that was shed for you. So I have a priest and I have a sacrifice and he has given me a holy law. And he says, keep that law because that law will show that you belong to the Christ and you don't belong to the Antichrist. There's something else he says. He says, this gospel is going to be preached in all the world. There is going to be a restoration. The stone is going to come. This nefarious little horn is going to be broken without hand. And the kingdom and the dominion will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. And so I get stirred up inside and I say, God, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Remember me. That's my prayer today. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I want you to do something now. If you want God to remember you, and if you can say today, I want the blood of Christ on my life. I want Jesus, my high priest, to stand in my place. I want his law written in my heart. And I want to turn from the deceitful teachings of human, man-made, anti-Christian systems, if you can say that today. And if you can say, Lord, remember me, then please get on your knees. Isn't that a great chapter? Mm. Now next week we're going to set up the blackboards. Uh, it's going to make it a little difficult for television, but we've just got to do it. And I'm going to show you the 2300 days, the restoration of truth in the last days. And I'm going to show you the coming of the Messiah, how it was predicted that he would come and start preaching in 27, how he would go to the cross in 31. It's great, marvelous prophecy. But let me say this to every one of you. The opportunities we have here in this country to hear the word of God places under tremendous responsibilities. God help us to take these truths, not cast them aside, but to enshrine them in the bosom of our hearts. Dear precious Father God, how we bless you today. We thank you for the message of the sanctuary that there is in the courtyard a bleeding lamb shed for us so that we can receive forgiveness. We thank you that we have a high priest that is not in any church, not in any ecclesiastical system, but he's at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he ever lives to make intercession for his trembling children. And our Father, we come today through the blood of the cross, and we claim forgiveness for our sins. We thank you that there's a holy law of God, and that the people who keep this law will be the happiest people in the world. And the keeping of this law brings great joy. And it shows to the world that here are people who are loyal to their Christ. We thank you, our Father, that the stone is coming. We thank you that soon the systems of men will be broken without hand. And our prayer today, 
O God, is the prayer of the dying penitent thief. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We're going to say this as a prayer. I want the congregation to repeat it. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Say it again. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. If you say that prayer today in sincerity, Jesus will turn to you and say, Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. We thank you, Lord. We bless you. We worship you. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.